It's great to be out with y'all again, studying God's word, singing praises to him, and just growing towards him together. If you want to turn with me, we're going to be in Acts chapter 8. That's where we'll be for the majority of this lesson. If you're older than about, I don't know, three or four years old, you probably at some point have heard the phrase, money makes the world go round. It's a pretty common phrase. A lot of us, I think, have heard it. The idea being that money is extremely important in this world, that just about everything that needs to happen happens by or because of money. We all want to eat, right? In fact, I would posit we all need to eat. But how do you eat? You go to the store, you buy the ingredients. That takes money. Or maybe you say, I'll I'll just go to a restaurant. No, that takes money. I'm going to grow my own food. Well, you have to have the land and you have to have the seeds. All that takes money too. And you can do this kind of exercise for just about every want and need in our physical world. Just about everything you can think of, it takes money to get there. Money makes the world go round. That's just how our culture is. But because of that, there's a real temptation to bring that kind of mindset into the church. After all, it works everywhere else. So why wouldn't it work here, right? You don't have to look very long at the religious world at large to see money and greed being woven together with religion. Just think of something like televangelists. They're private jets and mansions. You wonder, how did they get there? Well, because if you just donate $500 to me, God is going to bless you. And maybe it's not always that blatant and obvious, right? I think that would sound alarm bells in most of us. But that kind of focus on money even creeps its way into some churches. Maybe not as obvious as that, but some churches will say we're here to worship God, but then they put a huge emphasis on the dollar. It's all about new building projects, new flowers, new uh, huge bank accounts. Give us donations. All of the leaders in the church, they're all wealthy and powerful people. We're not going to evangelize in that area of the city because we don't want to deal with that kind of people here Whatever it is, it's not always that blunt, but it may not be the forefront, maybe number one publicly, but I think sometimes if we look hard enough at our churches, we'll realize money has become a pretty big priority in a lot of them. But believe it or not, that's not just a 21st century problem. That's not just an American problem. In fact, this temptation goes all the way back To the scriptures. This has been a problem since the very origin of the church, all the way back in Acts. In fact, Acts is full of stories about money and greed. When you actually look at it, you'll see money comes up a lot in the book of Acts, and it's very rarely in a positive light. 
And we're going to read one of those stories today that I think can show us a lot on this issue. We're going to see what a desire for money and fame and power can do to a Christian and what it can do to the work of the gospel. And we'll see that from Acts 8. And I'll just warn you, it's not a pretty picture. So if you're in Acts chapter eight with me. We're just gonna, we're gonna read the whole story. It's verses four through 25. Uh, I'll stop at a few points and kind of summarize the message and build a few themes as we go. So let, for now, let's just start by reading uh, verses four through 13. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him for a long time because he amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. And uh, we'll, we'll stop there for a second. So the story starts with the Apostle Philip proclaiming the gospel to the Samaritans, which to us might not seem noteworthy in and of itself. But if you recall, at this point in the story, the church is a Jewish entity. Cornelius and his family were not baptized until Acts 10. The Ethiopian eunuch is not baptized until later in this chapter. Gentiles had not been super readily accepted into the gospel yet. The gospel is at this point a possession of the Jewish people. And if you know about some of the background of the New Testament, there aren't many groups that Jews hated worse than Samaritans. They ranked pretty high on that list. The Jews were what we would deem racist to the Samaritans. The Samaritans were the political and religious rivals of the Jews. They didn't like each other at all. And yet, the gospel is preached even in Samaria. And it is preached successfully Many hear of the gospel of Jesus and they submit to God and are baptized. But a natural part of any sort of evangelism means that sometimes people from sort of unsavory backgrounds are going to find their way into the church. People that were formerly dedicated to all these evil, sinful pursuits will find God. And that is a beautiful thing. And the work of Samaria was no different in that. And that's where we introduce to the main character of this story of sorts. Simon the magician or magi or sorcerer, depending on your translation. 
So Simon's not only a Samaritan, but he's a magician. And that doesn't mean he did sort of lame tricks at someone's birthday party. That's not the kind of magician that we're talking about here. This means that he was some sort of religious teacher. He used the powers of magic to lead people towards false religions. He's a false teacher that was supported by this magic. In fact, people credit him almost as like a messianic figure, that he is the power of the God who is called great. That is a direct claim to the power of God. So he's not really the kind of guy that you would expect to walk into a church building. Simon was greatly respected by the people around him as a powerful leader towards this almost paganized view of God. But despite his past, he is grafted into the church. He believes and follows Christ. And despite what you'll read in a commentary or a study Bible, there's nothing in this story that seems to suggest to me that Simon's belief was anything other than genuine faith. The story portrays Simon as a changed man, leaving this paganized, magic-driven, false teaching and joining Philip in the gospel of Christ. Which to me makes his story even more pertinent and important to us. Because that means that at this point in the story, what we've read so far, Simon's just one of us. Simon is just someone that had bad stuff in their past, but he's put it away And he's dedicated himself to God. Which means he's just one of us. Let's read verses 14 through 17. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So the apostles hear about this group of Samaritans who have become believers in Jesus. And they seem curious. I'll put it that way. That I would imagine there were some, maybe not in the apostles, but some in the broader scale of the church who were skeptical about having the church in Samaria. I mean, sure, Jesus had taught Samaritans before, but can we really accept them into the church? They're not Jewish. They're not, they're the enemy, really. They're unclean. Can they really be a part of God's people? And so the apostles go down to see the Samaritan church and to pray for them. And when they had checked everything out and saw the great work that had been done by God to bring the Samaritans to himself, they laid their hands on the Samaritan Christians in order that they should receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now let's finish the story out by reading verses 18 through 25. Now, when Simon saw that the spirit was given through the laying on of apostles hands, he offered them money saying, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God 
with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. And now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. All right. So Simon saw the apostles laying their hands on the Samaritan Christians and them receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. I would say the story doesn't say that, but Simon was probably among those Christians who were receiving this gift. But when he sees this gift, his past life comes back to him a little bit. He sees the power and the wonder and the amazement. He would have seen the just awe-stricken reaction from the Samaritan Christians and the joy that that caused. He would have seen the blessings that they received by this laying on of hands. And when Simon saw this great miracle being done, what he saw was dollar signs. What he saw was an opportunity for religious power. What he saw was a business proposition just like he had done in his past life. You see, if the story ended in verse 19, if the story ended with just Simon saying, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit, I would say, you know, maybe he was misguided. His background was in this pagan magic stuff. He probably had good intentions. He just didn't fully understand how different God is and how different being a Christian is from paganism. I want to say that. I want to say that he was well-intentioned but mistaken. But I can't do that. Because when Peter rejects him, Peter doesn't say, hey, sorry, that's not really what we do here and then teach him better. It's not what Peter does. Peter says that this is a heart problem. Peter says, pray that the intent of your heart is forgiven. Peter says that he was bitterly envious and sinful. And what was the proof? Because he thought he could obtain the gift of God with money. He tried to bring greed and envy and money into the work of God. And because of that, Peter said that Simon had no part in this gift of God at all. And maybe it was in part due to Simon's background. Simon, as a magician, as a false teacher, might have thought that he could court the attention of God by having certain powers and that he could influence people to pay attention to Christianity by this gift that he had, as he had done in his past life with paganism. And he maybe thought he could be what the apostles were, but whatever he thought, it was clear that he wasn't doing this out of a love for God. He wasn't doing this out of a love for God's gospel. Peter says he's doing this out of greed and out of envy. 
He was bringing these pagan ideals of a reliance on power and status and money. Simon tried to bring all of that into the church and to the work of the gospel. And because of that, he had no part in the gospel at all. Simon blew his chance at a work for God out of a love for money and for status. And if that doesn't have alarm bells ringing in our heads, if that doesn't give you a little chill down your spine, then we probably need to wake up. Because not to get into applications too early, because we'll get there. But we've already talked about, we, like Simon, we've grown up in a culture that prioritizes money and status. We already said money makes the world go round. Could it be that we, like Simon, have that love of money and that love of power so ingrained in us, so second nature to us that we have let it creep into our church, into our work for the gospel, into our lives with God? May it never be. So Peter tells Simon to pray for repentance. And we never see Simon do that. We see him ask instead for Peter to pray to God for him instead, which is odd, but it doesn't necessarily mean that he was insincere. And then that's the end of the story. That's all we've got. Nothing that says, and then Simon repented and became a devout Christian, putting away his love of money and spreading the gospel. Nothing says that. Nothing that even says he went away sorrowful like the rich young ruler. We don't have anything that caps the story, except for a statement that the true work of the gospel went along unfaced. That even though Simon tried to derail the true work of God with envy and greed, God's true work kept spreading despite of him. Even to the Samaritans. And then that's it. That's the whole story. And I don't know why we're not given an end to Simon's story. But let me suggest to you that it offers us a great opportunity to put ourselves into Simon's place. To think from his perspective. And then to make our choice who we are going to serve, God or greed. Because Peter made it clear You have to make this choice. Peter said that those that are dedicated to money, those that hold on to this greed, like Simon, have no part in God's good gifts. That God will not put his Holy Spirit into those who serve money. Those who try to bring that worldly love for money and power into the church. And just like we talked about, if you were in the Sermon on the Mount class last Wednesday, what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, in verse 24 through 34. But he starts that section with this. He says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. That if you are going to love God the way that you're called to, you need to get the love of money out of your life. 
Not that you can't have a bank account or a 401k, but that you need to evaluate your intentions. What are you working for? Are you working for God or are you working for money? Are you spending your time seeking God or are you spending your time seeking money? What are you relying on to get you through this earthly life? Is it God or is it money? Are you serving God or are you serving money? Because if you're not sure of those answers, or if you realize maybe those answers aren't exactly what you think they need to be, if you realize you're serving money, you have no part in the good gifts of God. You have no part in serving him. And that's where Simon found himself. Lost in the eyes of God because of his prideful attempt to find money and to find power. And I'll just tell you, that's really scary to me. We are called to seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness. And we say that a lot. I mean, a lot of you probably have that painted on your wall somewhere. We say that all the time. But do we think about what it actually means? Because seeking first the kingdom of God, that's a lot more than just not sinning. That's a lot more than just getting adultery and lust and stealing and that kind of stuff out of your life. It's more than that. Seeking first the kingdom of God is a complete change of your heart. And I think Luke 18 Verses 24 through 30 gives us a great example of this. Huh, I had that on the screen. I didn't know that. Um, Luke 18 verses 24 through 30 gives us a great example of this because this comes right after the rich young ruler who went away sorrowful because he was rich. He didn't want to give up his pursuit of money. And Jesus said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it, they said, then who can be saved? If people that seek riches can't be saved, who can, Jesus? But Jesus said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus doesn't say that you can't be rich. Jesus doesn't say you can't have a bank account, which is great for us because by historical standards, every single one here is extremely rich. But Jesus does say that that wealth is going to bring a lot of temptations. Temptations for you to rely on yourself. Temptations for you to abandon God. Temptations for you to become a slave of money. Temptations that will result in you losing out on the free gifts of God. So we, like Peter, we say, 
Who can be saved? And the answer that Jesus gives is the one who chooses to rely on God, the one who chooses to love him, the one who chooses to give up whatever they have for God, the one who chooses to rely on God for deliverance and to love him, the one who chooses God over anything wealth, power, status, and money can give us, the one who chooses to live the life of God at all costs. Money and greed have no place in the work of the gospel. A desire for status and power have no place in the work for the gospel. If you want to turn with me, James chapter 2 says it this way. James chapter 2, and we'll just read the first nine verses. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man is wearing a gold ring and fine clothing, if he comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or you sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. God calls us to see our fellow Christians as equals in him. God calls us to treat all people impartially because the gospel is not just the good news to those who the world decides deserves it. The gospel isn't just for people successful by worldly standards. The gospel isn't just the good news to the rich. Gospel isn't just the good news to people who are like us. And anytime we treat it that way, we are sinning. Anytime that we as Christians, we show partiality to the rich, we try to ignore the poor, we are sinning. The good news of the gospel is good news because it is for everyone. Yes, for the wealthy, but also to the homeless, also to those who don't know where their next meal is coming from, also to those who the world has abandoned and turned their back on. They have a place in this church. They have a place in God's family. They are equals in Christ. We are all equals in Christ. There is no room for partiality or judgment based off of who you are to the world. The only thing we should be caring about here is who you are in God's eyes. That is the full list. And I hope this is a message that 
none of us need. I hope this isn't something that is a problem for any of us. I don't think that it is. But I have a fear that like Simon, we are all so blinded by what we've grown up with and what we've seen throughout our lives that we let money and greed and envy and pride slip into the church completely unnoticed. Because I don't think it was Simon's intention to destroy the work of God from the inside. I don't get that impression. I think that Simon was a real Christian. That's scary. Or at least it, it should be because that means that it's a temptation and an enemy that any of us here could face. We could all be Simon if we're not careful. And so we need to ask ourselves, am I taking my past? Am I taking my culture? Am I trying to weave money and status and pride into the church? Would Peter look at me and tell me that I need to repent because I have no place in God's work and good gifts? May it never be so here. But let's keep a watch on ourselves and on each other to make sure that our work for God is actually pointed towards God and not towards myself and not towards my ego. That none of us, individually or collectively, are serving money, showing partiality to the wealthy in life, and therefore losing our souls, losing our status as God's people. Because just like it did in Acts 8 in Samaria, the work of the gospel will continue on. God's work will not be limited or defeated by our weakness or greed. The question is, will we join him in his gospel and in his good gifts? So like we said earlier, we don't know if Simon repented, if he committed to his Christian life or if he fell back into his pagan ways chasing after money. But what we do know is that Peter told him he needed to repent, that he needed to get the slavery to the world and to money out of his life in order to have any part in the good gifts of God. And I want to say before we close, if we read this story and we say, I sound a little bit like Simon, that so much of the culture around me, so much of that obsession with money has clouded my judgment and clouded my profit towards God and clouded my priorities. If I've, like Simon, become corrupted by money and status, we need to repent and to give our hearts to God once again, to rejoin his work and his grace. Let's pray and then be dismissed to our classes. Father, Thank you for all the good gifts that you have given us. Thank you for the material blessings. Thank you for your health, or for our health and our livelihoods and the abilities that you've given us. But please, Father, give us the proper perspective and the vision to see these things for what they really are, that they are blessings from you and opportunities to return all things back to you as your servants. Help us to stay away from a love of money and power. Help us to repent and turn to you when we realize that we have failed you. Father, give us hearts of flesh and put your spirit in us so that we will love you and seek you better and that we will become your people and you are God. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.